Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, September 10th, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice, not an investment advisor. Please do your own due diligence. Make your own decisions. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay. So there's going to be like three videos I'm going to put on here. I'm not going to play them on the on here, but I'll put links to them so you can watch them. And I think they're fascinating for the several things that we've been talking about. This is a uh, this is an interview that the energy minister of India made with uh, some CNBC reporter. I don't watch CNBC, so I don't know who this woman is. Um, a couple things I took away from this. She asked him um, about, did he have, you know, why were they, why was India buying basically oil from Russia? Doesn't he have a moral uh, issue with doing that, considering the fact that, you know, we know what the mainstream media's view of this special military operation is. And I like what he said. He, he's not, uh, he said something similar to what many Indian politicians have said and what other people in these uh, other countries are starting to say. So what he basically said was, it's not a question. She talked about the morality of buying oil from this, you know, Russia because it's, you know, being sanctioned and all these things. And he said, listen, it's a question of energy. She asked him, isn't it a question of morals? He said, no, it's a question of energy. He went on to explain about, you know, they have 1.4 billion people and he, and he has a moral duty to his consumers. That's what he said. And so that's number one. Uh, I thought that was important because the, you know, as India now is getting wealthier, it's entering its, what they call the S curve. And that is the point in an economy when the average wealth gets to a point where commodity um, usage begins to accelerate, particularly energy. And we've talked about this before, so I'm not going to explain it, but that's what's happening. So if they're able, if, if the Indians are able to, in fact, buy oil at a $30 discount from what's at the market, that's to the benefit of the Indians, okay? That's to the benefit of his constituents. And so this goes to something else I've been talking about. You know, I've been talking about the fact that the U.S. hegemon, the hegemon that's, you know, the Atlanticist um, uh, hegemon that's existed in the United States, the U.K., and to a certain extent, Western Europe, uh, holding sway over the rest of the world. This is another example, and we've pointed out other examples. Now, you're getting ready to have the uh, Shanghai Cooperative Organization meeting in Tashkent next week. Uh, President Xi will be there. President Putin will be there. There'll be announcements uh, with the Central Asian countries. And, you know, you have um, countries like Argentina now wanting to join the BRICS. And so what you're seeing is something that we've been talking about for a while uh, and that has been articulated by um, the Russians and the Chinese and others now. Uh, they're becoming more bold. You know, if you saw recently various U.S. officials flying around the world trying to get support for these sanctions, it's not working. Okay. Um and threatening to bully these countries, threatening to sanction them is not going to work. It would work 10 or 15 years ago. It's not going to work with a country like India with a leader like Modi. Okay. Like I've said before, it's like these countries that are developing, you know, they went through their periods of colonialism and post-colonialism, and they have legacy issues from that and feelings about that. And so now that they can stand on their own two feet, now that they've got more confidence, now as their economies grow and their influence gets larger, like a country like India, they're not going to accept some, you know, somebody like Tony Blinken coming there and telling them, well, you need to do this and you need to do that or else. It's just not going to happen. And it's not just India, it's China, it's Indonesia, it's Bangladesh. You know, we just saw another meeting with uh, President Putin and the president of Myanmar you know, uh, where they're going to be taking more uh, oil. So this is slowly happening. It's been building for the last five or 10 years. Uh, 
you know, cooperation, currency swaps, um, lowering of debt, like in Russia, to only 18% of GDP, increasing gold reserves, all these things to fortify the economy, all these things to reach out and create this multi-polar uh, world that they say, I'm not necessarily in agreement with this, I can't tell the future, but that they say will be, not be based on the Western view of an international rule-based order that they may, that uh, Russia and China and people like that maintain only benefits the West. They want to create a multilateral world that will have fair, fair dealings with all countries. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm not naive enough to believe that. I don't know what will happen. But what I will say is that a large part of what you are seeing in the world today is a country, a, a leader, a hegemon that's in decline, i.e. the U.S. and the emergence of these other ones. It's like I said before, it's like little kids that are now becoming teenagers. And as people become teenagers, they start becoming rebellious and they're throwing off this yoke. We don't have to listen to the U.S. We don't have to take direction from the U.S. We can stand on our own two feet. We can make our own policy decisions. And so what I thought was interesting is just the tone that this reporter had. It's just typical of people in the West and people in particular in the, in the, in the United States. This, in, I'm so indignant. I, can't you understand? He's the energy minister of India, for heaven's sakes. You're a reporter on a two-bit financial channel that hardly anybody watches. You're in no position to question this man, but that's what they do. And they, people don't, appre don't like that and don't appreciate it. And when it's done, it's one thing, it's amusing when it's done by a reporter on, like I said, a two bit uh, financial thing like CNBC that nobody watches. I mean, I don't even know who this woman is. I have no idea who this woman is, but anyways, this is what we're seeing more of. And I thought, you know, the, the, there was two points to be made there. I thought were very, interesting because we're seeing more of this okay not less of it and so people aren't going to bend the knee people are going to do what's in their own self-interest you know i talk about charlie munger you know talking about how he has become he feels in his mind in the top few percent of people and understanding incentives and people following self-interest i think it's so important because it kind of dictates so much of what really happens in the world the qui bono who benefits? Why is somebody doing what they're doing? Why is someone motivated to do what they're doing? What is in their interest to cause them to do this? And that's what has to be looked at. Moralizing. These countries are going to moralize about all this stuff when they were under colonial rule just, you know, two generations ago. So uh, they don't need to anymore. They can throw off this yoke. They're not poor anymore. They're not, uh, you know, under the thumb. So... Uh, it's very interesting to uh, to see this. I will also say that you had the exercises in the Far East, the Vostok. It had so many countries. I believe India participated, China. And one of the things that you did see is both India and China in the last week pulled their troops back from the border. So some of the some of the border clashes that we have seen recently and even going back 30, 40, 50 years, maybe that's coming off boil now because people are realizing maybe what the real issue is in the world and it's not you know fighting over you know uh cashmere or whatever the border of cashmere i don't know but um it's interesting to watch you're seeing more and more of these anecdotal pieces of information that most people are not catching and i just don't see what the political class and all subsequent slides will demonstrate that that we have in the west this cadre of leadership of what i've called you know midgets dwarves if you will uh in leadership ability uh, is, I'm not sure they're going to be able to get us through this. So anyways, uh, I thought it was interesting. I'll put a link to it. You can watch it yourself. I thought it was uh, a good way to lead off. Um, speaking about oil, Schlumberger um, stated this week that uh, North American oil activity growing faster than expected. This is one of the companies that I suggested people buy like a year, year and a half ago. It's done really well. I think it's a since I recommended it 50, 60%, 70%, something like this. I don't know. I have a position in my portfolio, but uh, it was one of the publicly public companies. It was one of the companies I publicly recommended. Uh, it's not in the newsletter uh, portfolio, but it's just a big company that would do well. Uh, so what did they say? Top oil field services company Schlumberger on Wednesday said North American oil and gas activity was growing at a faster pace than expected as customers have largely shrugged off concerns about a looming recession. Well, this is interesting. You know, one of the things I'm taking note of, there's a lot of angst, there's a lot of discussion, 
There's a lot of speculating about what's going to happen with oil prices. What's, you know, I, I, I'm not doing that. I'm not a trader. I'm not trying to do that. I don't know what will happen with the oil price in the next week or month or even three months. But I do know that we, we probably underinvested by a trillion to $2 trillion, depending on whose analysis you want to listen to. And so we do not have, we have a shortage of molecules. And so inevitably, uh, we have found ourselves in this energy um, shortage, if you will, shortage of molecules. And so typically when these oil field uh, cycles happen, they're usually multi-year just because of the time it takes to do the work, mobilize to the field, set up all the infrastructure, the supply chain, everything just to you know do these wells. So uh, especially like offshore. You know, on, I know onshore, like uh, short cycle projects, yes. But what I'm trying to say is that, you know, uh, I think this current oil field services um, cycle is well underway, and I think it's established itself. So, yes, it can be volatile in the short term, but I think over the medium and long term, uh, we're going to see an up cycle that could last you know, three, five, seven years. I don't know. So uh, we'll have to see. Uh, goes on to say oil and gas produce, producer customers were more concerned with securing equipment and operational performance than a sudden drop in oil prices or potential recession, said the CEO. He also said international oil activity has the potential to grow at a faster rate than North American activity going forward. So we're seeing this all across um, just about every oil field services company that I've listened to their conference calls recently, they're all saying the same thing. Um, they're saying that uh, spending's increasing, activity's increasing, uh, and their forward guidance is being more and more positive. We're getting past the uh, what we were seeing maybe a quarter or two ago of cautiously optimistic into we're into a recovery. So I thought this was interesting. You know. I think we'd have to have a full-scale world depression, which you know many people uh, are. The chance of that happening is not zero, but I don't know what the chance of that happening, which would drive oil prices so low that uh, it would derail the recovery. I mean, all it would do is wouldn't really derail it. All it would do is temporarily uh, slow it down or suspend it because that investment has to happen because we're we're short of oil and gas. Okay, and that was before all of the uh, things that are happening in, in Europe. Okay, all the things that are happening because of the uh, uh, invasion of Ukraine. Okay, we were already uh, forecasting that we were going to uh, have shortages. Remember that, it's not just because of what's happening in Ukraine, although a lot of the people, leadership class is trying to spin it that way. We were already heading for a problem on supply before the invasion. All that did was throw gasoline on the fire. So again, I'll put a link to this article. Our friend, the PM of Belgium, he he has been putting out a lot of good uh, information. I don't think he means to do it, but he uh, has been very, um, shall we say, making eye-opening comments the last couple of weeks. And I'll put a link to this article uh, that uh, Javier Blas uh, took this tweet from. Belgian Prime Minister said, uh, quote, a few weeks like this and the European economy will just go into a full stop, unquote. Um, you will recall last week uh, he was quoted as saying that the people of Europe can expect five to 10 years of energy uh, you know, problems or shortages. Um, he goes on to say, quote, the risk of that is deindustrialization and severe risk of fundamental social unrest, unquote. So I'm not a fortune teller. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, obviously, the probabilities uh, look not good that uh, you know the economies in Europe are basically coming apart at the seams. Uh, there'll be some other slides. I'm going to show you a letter that uh, the big metalworking companies in uh, the EU sent to the uh, European Commission. Uh, saying that uh, you know something needs to be done pretty quick or it's going to be a problem. And so one of the things I want to focus on here is the deindustrialization. You know, if you look at a man like Robert Habeck, who is from the Green Party in Germany, I don't know the man. I don't know what goes on inside of his head. But coming from that, you know, uh, background that he does, 
even if what's happening is bad, you know, as far as affecting the people, affecting the economy, I wouldn't be shocked if they don't, I don't want to say secretly, but at least inwardly looking or part of it, they're not going to publicly say this, are not exactly sad that seeing the countries deindustrialize. I know the United States uh, would, you know, is, is viewing that as a positive because they would like to see another competitor taken off the stage, you know, and stop that, you know, creation of that island of the Eurasian landmass. But that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother story. But um, have the United, have the Europe be more dependent on the United States for its energy needs and for its security. And so the United States can keep its, you know, um, tentacles into Europe. But um, this is exactly right. If I said before, you know, there's certain plants that if they shut down and stay down for a period of time, they will not be restarted. And um, then again, we get to the social unrest. At what point, you know, I think it's going to be different populations will re react differently. But at what point does massive social unrest happen? You know, they're trying to paper it over now. It's interesting, the uh, ECB's raising rates now because of inflation. Uh, same thing in the United States, but we have, you know, all these countries talking about inflation, trying to respond to this uh, uh, inflation issues that is a major problem and that their populations are very, very aggravated about by, you know, having one on one hand, their central bank raising rates to try to, uh, you know, slow the economy down to lower demand. Uh, and yet on the other, with the other hand, handing out money to uh, compensate people or help them supposedly pay for their energy. So, um, it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out. I mean, I don't see anything that the Europeans have announced recently that's going to fix this problem. Okay. Um, they may be able to get through the winter with the, by having enough energy because they're sucking it in from everywhere, but they're paying top dollar for it. They're paying so much money. Okay. Because they do have a fear. There is a fear. It's pal it's palpable uh, when you listen to these people that they're worried, okay? And uh, I think they realize they may not survive this if they don't do something. So they're gonna pull out all the stops, but that doesn't mean you can run a zinc smelter uh, if you're paying you know, this huge amount of money for, or, or make steel, run furnaces to make steel if you're paying you know, five, 10 times more for, 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 for uh, energy than you were last year. So um, that's, that's, really the, um, that's really the question. And we don't know the answer yet. So here's another one, power crisis leading to an ex, quote, existential threat to EU metalworking industry. In a joint letter, more than 40 CEOs of European metal groups warn of a, quote, existential threat, unquote, to the industry due to sky high gas and electricity prices. Quote, 50% of the EU's aluminum and zinc capacity has already been forced offline due to the power crisis. Now, I find this interesting because those plants were running because there was a certain amount of demand. So if you take off 50% of the EU's aluminum and zinc capacity, who's making up for it? Um, we know that Russian production is not really slowing down. Uh, and they, they do a certain amount of this too. Um, I don't know who's picking up the slack. So does this cause further increases for other manufacturers and for supply chains? Well, you know, it, it, the inference is yes. I mean, you're at least the, the when you start putting the thought process or, or look, following the uh, flapping of the butterfly's wings, uh, yes. So I'll put a link to this letter that they wrote um, and you can read it. They give some suggestions of what to do, but you know, this is strong language that they're using. Existential threat means, you know, annihilation if it isn't fixed. That's what it means. You go away. How many thousands or tens of thousands of employees could be affected? These are high paying jobs, by the way, too, with unionized uh, workforces for the most part that will go to the streets. So it'll be interesting, we'll see. Here's our, <laughs> oh, here's Ursula Vandalin, uh, the EC, the EU commissioner, president of the commission, I believe is what her title is. I really, get, I do not like this woman, but um, anyway, she, another video you can watch, I'll put a link to it, but she's talking about uh, the mandatory target for reducing electricity use at peak hours in order to 
flatten the curve. Now, where have we heard that before? We're going to flatten the curve. I mean, if I recall, that was the whole, that was the term, that was the phrase used during the coup, right? We were going to do this or that intervention to, quote, flatten the curve. And you saw what a, well, in my view, what a disaster that was. And so I think they need to call their marketing department in Brussels and get a better uh, tagline uh, to sell this. But anyways, uh, what we're seeing is exactly what you could expect. Um, so the EU people in the EU who are bureaucrats, who are, I don't know, I, I don't like throwing these terms around, but uh, they want more control. They're a technocratic class. They're not Marxist necessarily, but they're a technocratic class that feels that they can push the buttons and turn the dials and move the levers and control everything and make everything efficiently run. That's how they think. And they want to do that with, you know, controlling large companies and in, in conjunction with large companies and they'll be able and everything will work out fine. And we know for a fact that history shows that that doesn't work. Uh, and so, you know, these people, as I've said before, they don't have an off ramp. They don't know what to do. Their plans are going awry. They have no backup plan. They have not gamed this out. And so when, you know, doing Europe didn't work, they're going to do more Europe. Let's, the, the answer is our, our plans and our, and our policies and the way we structured our energy policy for the last 10, 20 years. Uh, thank you, Mrs. Merkel. Uh, she was one of the instigators of this uh, and people before her uh, relying so much on cheap and uh, ubiquitous and easily obtained natural gas from Russia. And now, you know, the plan is, well, we'll, our policies and our control and our technocratic way of doing things didn't work. So we'll do more of that because they're not going to say they were wrong. Saying you were wrong as a politician means the end of your career. They will not do that. They will drag the entirety of the European Union peoples down with them. Now, these people won't suffer. They won't be turning their thermostats down. They, their life won't be altered at all. I mean, this woman, everything for her and everybody else in the, in the European Commission and, and, and those people and those bureaucrats in Brussels, I mean, they're catered to hand and foot. They don't have to worry about anything. And so um, they don't want to lose that power. And so there's gonna, their, their answer is when, you know, doing EU technocratic stuff doesn't work, let's do more of it. That's the only thing they know how to do. Uh, and they have no choice because, like I said, if they said, well, there's certainly there's I don't want to say it's zero percent, but it's almost a zero percent chance that these people would say, you know what, we were wrong. Let's have a reproachment with Russia. Let's get a peace with uh, between Russia and Ukraine and let's have a reproachment. That is I mean, I guess it could happen, uh, you know, but uh, I that would not be the high probability bet. So you expect more of this more regulation, more intervention, more trying to band-aid over a band-aid. And, uh, and then these people are just going to hope that it works out and hope that, you know, at some point something will happen and, you know, the problem will, will, will go away because they certainly, these things that they're suggesting are not things that are going to work in my view. So this is interesting. I think another thing that you see now is the pretenses that if anybody had around China or these other, you know, developing countries or emerging economies, that they were going to get on board the climate change thing. You could throw that out the window now. That's not going to happen. I mean, China at least used to pay lip service to it. They don't care. Uh, they're going to, they, I've known that all along. Anybody that's dealt with uh, China or deals with uh, Chinese businesses. I mean, I've done enough in the power industry to know that these people, uh, well, I don't want to make general statements, but uh, they're in it to win it for themselves. China is doubling down on coal to ease its energy crunch. China plans to add 270 gigawatts. That's just so you know, folks, that's 270,000 megawatts. Okay. I believe. Yeah. That'd be 270,000 megawatts of thermal capacity in the five years through 2025. Okay. Well, it's actually already started. That's more than an earlier estimate of hundred to 200 gigawatts. This may thwart its climate goals. Yeah, it will. I mean, they don't really have any climate goals. They were just paying lip service to it, but now 
uh, because the United States has instigated uh, all and, and, and keeps poking everybody. I mean, there's no reason for them to play along with this anymore. They're going to do what's in the interest of China. Again, they're going to do what's in their best interest. And so that may not be um, in the interest of the globalists or the people that want to control emissions around the world and all this stuff. Remember, you know, this technocratic class in Europe and this, this is another thing I get a kick out of people. This is kind of a sidetrack. But, you know, people say, well, you know, the WEF, Klaus Schwab, it's a conspiracy. They're going to try to take over the world. Listen, Europe and the United States, and if you want to throw Australia, Canada, New Zealand in there, okay, that's like 12 or 15% of the world's population. And the economic clout of those countries is shrinking every year relative to the rest of the world. That's what I'm trying to tell you, okay? I guess they can have their little dystopian nightmare in Western Europe or the U.S., but if you think that all the rest of the countries around the world are going to go for this or not, and you're already seeing it. Saudi Arabia, okay? I've talked about this before. I mean, like I just mentioned earlier in this video, Argentina now saying that they want to join the BRICS, okay? You're going to see more of this. People are going to be like, wait a minute. We don't want anything to do with these people. Uh, we're going to go and align with the 80% of the world that's not nuts. And this other group of people is just going to get, you know, I guess they could create their own little self contained dystopia you know like california does in the u.s right i mean and that's why they're losing population and the same thing i think you could see you know there was a there was a a a you could you're going to see people leaving europe okay and leaving the united states eventually you're already seeing it in the u.s people are leaving these crazy states like california illinois and new york and moving to places like texas Florida, Tennessee, you know, Nevada, whatever, to get away from the Texas, to get away from the nonsense, to get away from uh, all the, uh, uh, the the poor quality of life. And I think you could conceivably see the same thing in Europe. Okay. Uh, so, uh, but getting back to this, China's going to do what's in their best interest and they need power. So they're going to build. And so this is good for coal. The, this idea that coal was going to go away, coal, you know, it's not going away. Uh, like I said in previous videos, coal use i think this year made a new all-time record it wasn't like a huge one but it's it was and so you know it's not going away anytime soon and so as we've said before that's a unique and excellent opportunity because in many parts at least in the west you know you're not the, the supply of coal is going to be constrained coming online if you don't believe me i, I didn't find the article but i did read an article uh, i'll try to find it for the next week's video like the Basel IV banking regulations or banking uh, things that are coming out, some amendments that were made, I don't know if they've been ratified or not, but there were some discussion around forcing banks to say you already had some loans on your books that were for fossil fuels, uh, for like a coal mine or oil, oil development or something like that. If you already had some loans, you would have to hold like 125% of the value of those loans in reserve, right? Because the idea being, well, climate change is going to make all these fuels go away. And so these loans will be at higher risk. And so you need to have a reserve against them because, uh, you know, oil and gas and coal are going away. Well, what I, that was for existing 125% reserves for whatever loans you make. So that's going to, you know, be one thing. But what I saw for new loans would be 1,250%. So if you wanted to make a loan to an uh, oil development, you know, or an oil project for a billion dollars, you would have to have 1,250% of the value of that loan on reserve. And so quite frankly, you would make, the idea is to disincentivize or make it so costly to fund new fossil fuel development. That's in the West, that's, you know, Basel IV. So I don't know, you know, if you think that the rest of these countries in the world are gonna sign up for that, they're not. It's not in their interest. They need the molecules. We have a shortage of molecules. Okay, so Liz Truss is the new PM. Um, I'm not really impressed. Some other people uh, are, or not are, but think this, I mean, she's just another stooge of the globalists, just a globalist stooge. She's made a few things, things here she's going to do, um, but it's just really no change from Boris Johnson. Um, New UK, UK Prime Minister announces energy policy. The policy announcement is expected to freeze the price of energy either at its current level 
or at 2,500 pounds, I guess that's per year. And it as it currently stands, the gap coming into effect early ne next month will raise the average bill from 1,900 to 3,500. So they're gonna freeze it at 2,500 pounds. Again, price caps lead to shortages, but we'll see. Um, Truss said she would, quote, deal with the energy crisis caused by Putin's war, unquote, okay? In her maiden speech as prime minister on Tuesday evening, quote, I will take action this week to deal with energy bills and secure our future energy supply, unquote. So, um, and I'll get into some of the things she's talked about doing, but I'm not sure. I mean, she already uh, said that they're going to uh, lift the moratorium. I think there's like 135 permits that are being held up for North Sea drilling that got lifted. Uh, but the problem is, is these things have a long lead time. And again, I don't think that the energy cap, energy price caps are going to work. I think they're going to lead to shortages, but we'll see. And again, where are they getting the money for this? These countries don't have any money, okay? They're, they're already in economic, they're already in recession. They have huge amounts of debt relative to their GDPs. And so I guess the view is, you know, you're trying to get inflation under control by raising rates at the central bank. We've talked, I just talked about this earlier in the video, and now you're going to hand out all this money. You cannot print molecules. At some point, there, no matter how much money you print, if there's no molecules available, it doesn't matter. So we'll see if we run into that problem. The problem is, is that if they print money and suck all the available LNG into Europe, which is the plan, I guess, then what happens to these other countries around the world? This is going to be aggravating to other countries. This is going to push them. You know, people say, well, Russia is, you know, has nowhere to sell their energy. Well, why wouldn't Pakistan sign a long-term long contract with Russia? You know, you already have the power of Siberia going into China. You're going to have the next phase two of that coming online. And it's just going to move more towards that. That's all. And, uh, I mean, people are going to be pissed off when they realize in their countries, well, the reason we don't have adequate energy here is because the Europeans are printing money and sucking all the available energy into Europe. How do you feel about that, Indians or Bank Bengalis or Indonesians or whatever? So, you know, we'll see how, that's, how, how that works. Interesting, it goes on here. The number of people in fuel poverty in Britain defined as being able to adequately heat a home will hit 12 million households. It's 42% this winter if financial support isn't put in place, according to the End Fuel Poverty Coalition. I don't know what that is. But if that's an accurate number, that's staggering. And so they have to do something, right? If they don't, then, like I said, uh, the pitchforks are going to come out at some point. The exact details of the package have yet to be revealed. Initial projections suggest it may be around 100 billion pounds worth of support. But the latest estimates from Deutsche Bank said it could be closer to 200 billion pounds. That's just for this tranche of support. So if this continues like the Belgian PM is saying for five to 10 years, I mean, I just don't see how this is going to work. This is not good. This is a problem. So we'll see. Um, the other thing that she said that she was going to do, I mean, they're going to continue on with the previous uh you know, building out the nuclear fleet in Great Britain or the UK. But I thought this was interesting because it's actually could be actionable for us. You know, several years ago, I actually, there was a company, um, Cronulla, I can't remember the name of it. There was a company that was doing um, shale gas exploration and potential production in, in UK. And they had drilled some wells. And then this whole, of course, anti-fracking, uh, NGOs or constituency arose and kind of shut it down. As a matter of fact, these companies, this company was supposed to to cement in or 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 plug its last two exploration wells, and they got a pass to keep them open because of the um, energy crisis. So, uh, what Liz Truss is saying here now, she's saying that she's she removed a ban on drilling for shale gas in effort to boost domestic energy. I mean, the UK has tremendous, and other places in Europe have tremendous amounts of shale gas. And there were efforts made maybe even a decade or more ago to try to exploit this, uh, even in Poland, coal bed methane. 
and some other places, the UK has a substantial shale resources. I'm not sure they can be exploited like the ones in the US, but immediately the environmentalists and these constituencies came out of the woodwork and they basically put so much political pressure on it, that they shut it down. So it'll be interesting to see if the price rises, if the um, majority of people will be able to overcome uh, you know, they say, well, we want, we don't care. We need to do this. We need to exploit these resources because the, the resources are estimated. I think I saw, read in an article, just exploiting 10% of the UK's shale potential can supply the place with gas for 50 years. Now, there's several things. I don't know if the geology is sufficient. I don't know enough about it. There's no oil field services there uh, to really ramp up like you have in the US. A problem with a lot of the oil and gas exploration around the rest of the world is that in many cases, the state or local authorities um, have jurisdiction or own the resources. And so it's not like in the US, if you have the mineral, well, if you have the mineral um, rights on a property, you can go in and drill it. You can sign deals with companies, a uh, landman comes around and you sign on and you get your royalties or whatever, if, if, if a well comes in. That's not really how it is in, in most of the other countries. So you have a lot of barriers to having this thing just ramp up. So it would take many years, if ever, in my view, probably never, but uh, it's, it's there and it's worth exploring. So there are a couple companies, I'll find them. Uh, I might talk, to, talk about them here on the, uh, on the channel, or I might just, uh, if they look promising, I think two of them are traded in Australia. I can't remember the names off the top of my head. I looked at them a couple years ago, but if this actually gains traction, that could be, uh, you know, something to look at. And so it goes right here. It says, even with the re... Um, even with the renewed government support, the shale gas industry still faces an uncertain road with significant opposition from local communities and the challenges related to the country's geology. See, that's what I was talking about. Only 17% of people in the UK support fracking, according to a government survey conducted last year. Well, we'll see, you know, as people uh, realize that they're in an energy uh, problem, and then if the government can spin it as, you know, national survival or you know, we're at war, that kind of stuff, then people can uh, have their views changed. But uh, something to look at, uh, at least, you know, things are being said, but it doesn't cost anybody to say anything. Going in there and getting it done is, is, is the real challenge. So we'll see. So I thought this was good. This was in Australia. There was a member of parliament that they have this same thing that, you know, they have in a lot of the, like in the UK or Canada where, ministers or the prime minister has to come in front of the parliament and they have questions and so i believe this woman here on your screen is the minister of energy or ministry of environmental i don't know that didn't really say and so one of the parliamentarians stood up and said what does net zero actually mean um and she's she it's about a two-minute video and she just goes into this long bs diatribe of word salad that when you get to the end of it, you don't know what it means. It's, you know, basically this isn't what she says on the answer, but it's basically the impression. It's the impression you'll be left with. I don't know, but we're going to do it anyway. That's, that's basically it. You can't really explain it. And I've asked that question too. What does it actually mean? You know, this is the problem I have with a lot of people that I talk to. And it's part of the problem with communication, especially like even in the comment section, uh, and I'm guilty of this myself, not just the, the commenters. It's on Twitter. It's in a lot of things. A lot of times when you get into discussions with people or arguments, if you want to call it, I'll just call it discussions. If you don't define your words properly, then you, you're going to have a hard time. Well, let's just say it frankly. A lot of people don't define their words properly. So that means they don't know what they're talking about. So if you and I have a word, if we take net zero and you have a definition in your mind, that means a certain thing and I have a definition, then we're going to be talking nonsense to each other. So if we can't, you know, define what net zero is and come to a definition of what that really means vis-a-vis -a, -vis a policy response or what's that going to mean so that we can look at what the, what the effects of the policy will be to economics, to society, to, you know, all facets of things that we need to look at, then, you know, well, you don't really need to know, citizen. We're going to do it anyways because we're a technocratic class and we know what we're doing. Trust us. It's science. Scientism. We know. You don't have a uh, PhD in uh, environmental studies, so sit down, citizen. 
So uh, I know I'm being sarcastic there, but that's the gist of this. And it's, I don't know how much longer people are going to put up with this, especially, you know, I think they can get away, the technocratic class can get away with this because people are not focused on these issues. You know, these people devote their whole lives to it. They're constantly worming around or with their little friends and their NGOs or the money, money class that's supporting it or whatever. Uh, and most people are just living their lives or doing their thing. But when you become focused on it because you're out of a job, because you have no energy, your food costs are going up, inflation, then your mind tends to focus. And I think that we may be coming to that type of inflection point where people now are not going to be worried about, you know, NFL football and barbecues on Sunday. They're going to be, you know, or in, in the in the, in the Europe, not you know, focusing on the fact that uh, the energy costs are ten or twenty times higher than they were normally. This has a this has a way of saying, wait a minute, what are we really doing here? Who who voted for this? We'll see. Again, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just, you know, I have a tendency because I am, um, I am somebody that is very loving of freedom. I I. I'm very independent. I everything you know. I don't uh, look to sponge off other people or the government, but uh, you know, a lot of people do. And you know, I have this view that everybody, you know, I'm not anymore. But I used to have. I didn't think about it, but you know, maybe if I did, I thought, well, everybody's kind of like that, right? No, no. Uh, I think Dostoevsky uh, said something about this that most people would rather just be a slave and be, be given uh, and have a known outcome that they were going to get a enough bread to survive they would rather have that than have the uncertainty of having freedom and have to stand on their own i mean i'm paraphrasing i think it's in uh, well uh so i i i read uh read that i can't remember what what um uh, what particular work that was from but that's just the gist of it so we'll see we'll see if everybody's on board for net zero and being impoverished i don't think they are but we'll see so here's the CEO of Repsol. This is a very large Spanish international integrated oil company. And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, we get Annalena Baerbach, the prime minister of Belgium, now the CEO of Repsol, all of these things. I don't know if they're having Freudian slips or there's some, something in the water in Europe, but uh, people are saying stuff that uh, maybe they shouldn't be saying. So what does he say? Um, according to I can't pronounce this guy's name. I was calling him the CEO. According to the CEO of Repsol, the Russian invasion of Ukraine was not the only reason for a surge in gas prices. Quote, in Europe, we have opted for an ideological energy transition in which we are selecting or rejecting, preventing investments in certain energy sources for ideological and not technological reasons. Well, that's interesting. He probably shouldn't have said that, right? Um, again, what's he saying? We are we have opted for an ideological energy transition in which we are selecting or rejecting certain energy sources for ideological reasons, not technical reasons. Hmm. Okay. Uh, according to the CEO, the energy transition in Europe was wor has worsened the current crisis and has not addressed the main problem it is supposed to address, CO2 emissions. Well, that's what we agree with that. Now, it's interesting if you read the article, this is, I think, a Reuters article, they go into the obligatory, uh, you know, I, I hate this kind of stuff where people will say, um, I'm against the COOF vaccine, but I'm not an anti-vaxxer. It's the same thing that you'll see in this article. Uh, well, he may have said this, but, you know, be assured Repsol's investing billions of dollars in renewables. They always, hey, look, man, if you don't agree with it, you don't agree with it. Okay, so to meet these arbitrary ESG mandates that have been put in place around the world, or by these investment firms like BlackRock or whatever they're trying to do. So they're going to throw money away into, uh, you know, building offshore wind farms when their core competency is, you know, exploring and producing oil and gas. And so I'm shocked that, you know, this guy actually said this. Uh, but of course, like I said, you get the obligatory, well, you know, he may have, he said this, but be rest assured, Repsol is, you know, they, they're, they're, they're doing the good boy dance. But uh, like I said, we're seeing more of this. I don't know if it's by accident or it's just a big bunch of Freudian slips. So I wanted to switch gears. Haven't talked a lot about it on the public channel about tankers, but this was a slide from the earnings call from Torm. They're a tanker company. And 
this kind of gives you a really quick overview of, you know, the tanker stocks have really, especially product tankers have really recovered quite a bit. Rates have went through the roof recently. Well, since the uh, outbreak of hostilities in uh, Ukraine. And here's the key drivers for the next two to three years, according to Torm, towards a strong product tanker market. Talking about demand, key drivers. Sanctions on Russia leading to trade recalibration towards longer distances. Now, I've talked about that before, you know, as we've, as all these sanctions have been put on, we've, like I said, we've completely thrown a stick into the spokes of the wheel of our energy delivery systems that were efficient, you know, via pipeline as close to the sources we could get them, um, all that type of stuff. And so because of the sanctions, now the demand is still there for these products, but they have to come from further away from India, the Middle East, wherever the refining is taking place. So this is very good for product tankers, especially for a country like India. We've talked about it before. They take Russian crude that they buy at a discount. They refine it because they have a very large refining industry there, like Reliance, uh, which is a big conglomerate there. And then they put it on these product tankers or mix it with other products to dilute it uh, so it's not fully Russian, and then they send it to Europe. That's what's going on. Even the Indian energy, energy minister said that in that interview. Okay, so the hypocrisy is there. But that's a whole another thing. This is why you're seeing it. So refinery dislocation, adding to ton miles, and that's the key thing you want to see, like longer distances, ton miles. Uh, the need to replenish inventories, adding to trade volumes. Um, diesel and distillate stocks are like 20-something-odd percent below five-year averages. And so... Um, yeah, you're going to see, we're seeing rates now at points where it's driving tremendous cash flow. Um, so on the supply of tankers, let's talk about that. Historically low order book to fleet ratio, meaning low fleet growth, high new building prices and limited shipyard space, limiting order inactivity. That's something to understand because most of the, you know, the first sector in ship shipping that blew up as far as rates was, um, uh, was containers because of uh, COVID and all that um, and discombobulating the uh, international shipping industry. They had huge spikes in container shipping. So what happened? They ordered a lot of ships. So the shipyards are stuffed now with orders for the next couple of years, primarily with container ships. And so uh, that's what always happens to derail these shipping bull markets these guys get cash in their pocket. And so, you know, they want to play the big shipping magnet and they go out and start building new fleets and new ships. Of fle and that eventually short circuits uh, as demand overwhelms supply and short circuits the, uh, the high rates that they had. So, I mean, they go on here to say as one of the risks uh, for supply, high earnings could lead to higher ordering activity delivery from 2025 onwards. I'm quite sure that uh, will probably be long gone, but uh, out of shipping by then, but all of my tanker stocks now have come alive. Um, they're doing very well in the portfolio, and uh, this is why. And uh, you know, we didn't anticipate this, but I did talk about, I think, in one of the uh, a video about a, a shipping stock that I had in the portfolio when I first started the newsletter, and I bought it because you know I thought on an asset basis it was very cheap. Uh, it was Euro Seas was the name of it. It was a smaller container ship company, horrible company, older ships, smaller container ships, mostly for doing small ports around Europe and the Mediterranean, things like that. And it really didn't do well. And then I sold it. And then when the uh, COOF hit and shipping rates exploded for all container ships, this thing 20 bagged. It went up 20 times in about a year and a half. So when you catch a shipping bull market, it can be tremendous. And so it doesn't necessarily mean fundamentals. The fundamentals for Euro Seas were not good. Uh, they were just breaking even. And we thought, well, eventually this thing will turn around because the same thing as the fleet shrinks, yada, yada, yada. And then it took the coof to get it going. And it seems the same thing has happened now with the tanker industry and primarily with clean tankers um, because of this discombobulation in the world energy markets caused by sanctions and caused by the, this incursion into Ukraine, if you want to characterize it that way, um, we're seeing an explosion in tanker rates as the fuel is still in demand, but now it has to be shipped from further and further away. 
this is interesting. You know, I was talking about this in a recent, in the free email I send out every week, uh, which you can check out in the, uh, you can, there's a link down there in the uh, show notes. If you want to subscribe to that, we talk about these type of things. Uh, it's free. Uh, typically about once a week, I send it out, but I'm actually kind of, you know, think about it. We have supposedly, we're, we're probably in a recession or close to being in a recession in the U.S. China is in lockdown, so I'm sure it's probably teetering on recession. Europe's in a recession and heading for a depression. And yet we haven't really seen, you know, I got my, my indicators told me to sell base metals a few months ago, which we did maybe four or five months ago. We sold gold the same way. But these things really haven't dropped like I thought they were going to do it. Same thing with oil. We're still above $90 Brent, considering all this stuff. Copper's at $3.55 a pound, I saw today. You know, at one time, it was about a buck higher. You know, I was expecting to get down into the twos. I was expecting oil to maybe get down into the 60s or high 50s. Um, and maybe that's coming. Maybe it just hasn't happened yet. But, you know, I've been a little shocked about how the prices for these commodities are holding in. It's leading me more and more, the more I uh, investigate this, and especially when I read the recent uh, Gorian and Rosenzweig uh, Q2 report, um, you know, the underinvestment that is not just in oil, but across the entire resource uh, specter is really starting to hit home, I think. And so what you're seeing here is spreads in copper. Copper is, uh, this is an indication of copper becoming uh the supply is tightening. Now, I don't know how this only goes back for this year. I don't know how to really look at this, if this is just an anomaly, but this was something I pulled off a Bloomberg article and I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe there's something to this because, you know, at this point in a recession, you would think, or maybe we're not far enough into it. I don't know. Maybe demand hasn't been crunched enough, but is it also possible, like we've been talking about, that the supply is so tight now because of the underinvestment that we're not going to see this tremendous drop. Now, maybe we will, I don't know. Like I said, I don't want to forecast this, but it's making me think at least. And um, getting back to what I think is going to be a catalyst at some point, um, you know, in the future, remember the dollar now has hit like a two decade high recently. Uh, most commodities are inver inversely correlated to the dollar. And so if the dollar is going up um, because of the price of these commodities is priced in dollars, it has a tendency to depress the price. Okay. So we're not really seeing that. I, I thought we'd see more of that. Same thing, you know, like with oil, we're getting into now another part of the shoulder season, summer driving's over with, you would expect um, demand to drop off for gasoline as refining refiners start shifting more towards distillates for heating oil and things like this. And typically you would see the price of oil, uh, seasonality kicks in for it to go down. And so maybe we'll, you know, that usually goes from about this time through just the first part of December, around December, where the oil price typically weakens. So we could see some near-term weakness, but I mean, are we going to get down to 50 or $60 a barrel? I don't know. Um, it's interesting. You know, I know there's a lot of fear in the market. One of the things that's really pressing on these um, resources is uh, prices or commodity stock prices is this idea that we're going to have a recession. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be 2008. And like I said, you should read that uh, Q2 report by Gorian and Rosenzweig because it puts forth a thesis that has happened in before. It has precedent, like especially during the Great Depression, even though stock prices and the economy uh, were down, obviously, because it was the Great Depression. During that period of time, that decade, if you will, um, commodities actually were higher over that period. And that's something similar that happened in 1969, that decade, and 1999. So there is precedent for, it's not intuitive, it's not in stone, like a lot of people seem to think sometimes, that just because the economy is weak, that that necessarily leads to having lower commodity prices. And so we may be in a situation like that again. So I think you should read that. It's like 40-page report. Um, not the, the whole report's not about that, but they make a, they make a thought stimulating argument. So I don't know if it's true or not. I mean, maybe in fact, the economy will go into a deep recession and all these things will eventually just, you know, hit the wall and fall off by 50% from here. I don't know. 
but uh, it's interesting to see that it really hasn't happened like that so far. Yes, they've pulled back, but not to the extent that you that I have seen in the past. And so I think this is the last, I'll get into the last slide. Uh, more positive uranium news. You know, I hope you took advantage. I think it was maybe a couple months ago or maybe it was a month ago, I can't remember. I think at one time the Sprott Uranium Trust was selling at a 15% discount to net asset value, maybe a little bit more, 16 or 17%. I can't remember off the top of my head. And I was, I remember I was advocating for people to buy it. Um, there was a lot of despair. There was a lot of people throwing in the towel. The sediment was very negative in the uranium market. And isn't it amazing how fast things can turn around? And we, we said to hold the course. We said to, this is, we've demonstrated in previous videos that um, you're going to be subject to big pullbacks in this bull market. And that the news, the fundamentals, nothing has changed fundamentally. And I've been saying that for the last two and a half years, that we are in a uranium bull market. It will be volatile. There will be big pullbacks. And that's exactly what we saw. You know, we had that last summer, we had that, I think, kind of a blow off, if you will, when the trust just came on, came into the market, started hoovering up all the spot uranium. And we had this big run and then, you know, the thing got way overbought and then pulled back and then just drifted lower and lower, but nothing really changed. More reactors were getting built, yada, yada, yada. And people just, you know, chasing that shiny object. It's no longer shiny. It's no longer stimulating the dopamine releases. It's no longer creating visions of sugar plums and unearned wealth in my uh, eyes. And so I'm going to move on to the next thing, right? And uh, we just sat here, um, right here in this particular chair and just wait because patience is, is the key to these things. Nothing has changed fundamentally. In fact, the fundamentals continue to get better and better and better every week, it seems. And so here's more news, big news from China, demand side models for uranium will need big revisions. You know, we talked about the Japanese bringing their reactors back on online. And now we have China now has the capacity to build more reactors than planned through 2025. The national target is six to eight reactors a year, but that could be raised to 10. And so again, you know, if you want to have energy security, if you don't want to have what you have in Europe, then you have to have a diversified mix. Uh, you have to utilize what's available and what makes sense. And for a country like China, that means nuclear power, that means coal power, that means you know gas. They do have a big renewables business there too. Don't uh, discount that. So they need molecules. That's what I keep trying to tell people. There's a shortage of molecules. You need molecules uh, and demand for energy is going to increase. It's not going to decrease, especially as the sophistication and complexity of an economy gets bigger and bigger or more complex, more things going on, like with server farms in the background. You know, you're messing around on this phone on some app and some server farm, who knows where, uh, is sucking in all this uh, electricity to run all these computers and, and servers and everything else, requires air conditioning to keep it cool, all these things. So um, as things become more sophisticated and more complex, you require additional and increasing amounts of energy inputs. That's why this whole net zero thing makes no sense. It makes sense if you want to you know, lower the population on the earth and get rid of a bunch of people because that's what will happen. But here we go, China's not playing that game, okay? And the rest of the world's not gonna play that game either. And so that's an opportunity. Again, I don't wanna get into the politics, heads we win, tails we win more. There's not enough copper, folks. I told you to watch that video last week by that uh, Andrew Michaud. Uh, he's an assistant professor at Queensland University. He goes into it, okay? Mark Mills has written about this. I've mentioned him before, the Manhattan Institute. Um, all you have to do, it's, it's just spreadsheet exercises. You don't have to be a, 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 a um, nuclear physicist to figure out how much available, how much copper do we need? How much nickel do we need? How much cobalt? How much lithium? And then look at the geological survey and see what the estimated reserves are. So we have to do a lot of work, um, like I said, you know, and I think the Chinese realize that. And so they're going to, if you want to have a growth, growing economic prosperity 
and energy security so you don't end up like you know california or europe where you're having blackouts and things like that then you can't just rely on wind and solar you cannot make re rebuildables your your primary you have to have a diversified um, and well thought out uh, energy policy So, you know, we have an election coming up here in the U.S. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I think people are pissed off, but this was an article from the Daily Mail in the U.K. This is 35% of U.S. households cannot afford basics. Some 35% of working families cannot meet their weekly outgoings for housing, food, medical, transport, child care, and other expenses. Full-time work alone isn't enough to cover the everyday essentials most families need to support themselves which creates significant financial hurdles to support children. In a survey this month by the Wall Street Journal, nearly two thirds of registered voters said the economy was either not good or poor and close to two thirds said the pain of higher costs made them more likely to cast a ballot. Well, we'll see. I mean, one thing I remember, you know, my dad was involved in politics in Minnesota in the uh, 60s and 70s. Um, he knew some of the uh, democratic because of his activities in the in unions and stuff like that, some of the uh, high-profile Democratic politicians, and he told me the story about what you know, Hubert Humphrey said one time. Look, when a guy goes into when a person goes into that ballot booth, they're going to vote their wallet every single time. Okay, yes, they may be influenced by other things, but if the economy is bad, if their financial condition is bad, they're going to vote their wallet. That's what people do, and so if they're prosperous. You know, typically the party in place will um, uh, get the benefit of that. Now, there's a lot of doomsday stuff going on right now because they're saying, well, there's not going to be a red wave. I don't know. I'm not a fortune teller. But I do know this. When you have an election coming up, like in November, nobody's paying attention to any of this stuff. I'm talking about no, nobody being the average person until after Labor Day. So we're after Labor Day now. We're coming down to the last you know, 45, 60 days before the election. And then people will start focusing their mind on what candidates. So I think, you know, you'll see things tighten. You'll see things change. Uh, it's obviously, you know, um, the current administration wants to limit the amount of damage and hopefully, you know, in an ideal world, uh, they would hold the Congress and continue on with their program of destroying the U.S. Uh, so in the rest of the world, evidently, that seems to be the track we're on. But people are not happy, okay? And so... Uh, um, we'll see people's minds will focus now. I don't know what will happen. We'll see. Um, I'm not a fortune teller, but, uh, this is not good. This is not good for, uh, you know, just the country as a whole, 35% of working households can't afford basics. This is a problem. And so another thing I want to talk about, you know, inflation, I talked about this a couple months ago, you know, used car prices are like 4% of the CPI calculation. And so I said that they were coming down, I think a couple months ago, I, I showed that they kind of rolled over. And so uh, wholesale used car prices declined 4% in August, the biggest one month decline ever recorded. So we already had peaked a couple few months ago. And so what we're seeing is this is just more of that anecdotal evidence, okay? And so, like I said before, I don't think we're going to see a world of 2% um, CPI for a while. But I do think that if we get down to 5, 4, 5, 6%, that maybe the Federal Reserve will declare victory and we'll see what happens. That's kind of the thought process. I mean, the economy now is rapidly slowing. Could be looking at the third straight quarter of economic decline. We're starting to see, well, we're not starting to see leading economic indicators are negative or moving in a negative direction, indicating we're heading towards uh, a problem. And so uh, that definitely will have a problem. And we're seeing more of this, right? Housing prices are coming down massively. Used car prices, these are all inputs. They take a while to work their way into the numbers. And we've seen energy prices come in quite a bit. So uh, this will um, have an effect. So like I said, uh, my view is not that, uh, you know, I don't think Chairman Powell is this, uh, I'm not going to give him the credit, say he's going to be the new Volcker. It's, the circumstances are different. Um, these people want to inflate. That's what they're there to do, to uh, take care of uh, Wall Street. And so I think that as soon as they can pause, they will. And I think that when you, 
this is what I think maybe be happening in the metals now. I mean, gold still holding above $1,700 an ounce. Copper, like I said, is at 355. The dollar looks like it may have, you know, reached an interim peak. Are we starting to sniff out now a pause and then, you know, a deflation coming on, which would lead to, you know, ostensibly at some point in the near future or medium term, uh, cutting the rates. You know, these markets will sniff this out before it actually happens. It's not like you're going to have to wait. Uh, they will see it. And you're starting to see maybe I started noticing, you know, some of the companies that I'm watching uh, maybe making some bottoms, a very speculative type uh, situation. So uh, I don't want to predict anything. I'm just saying, just giving you the data here, uh, things that are going into calculations for headline inflation are coming down. Uh, how long it takes for them to work themselves into and actually have this big drop uh, remains to be seen. Uh, but this is, like I said, this is the biggest one month decline ever recorded. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Appreciate the viewership. And uh, we thank you for um, watching our videos. We keep growing. And uh, we're getting, you know, typically over almost 4,000, 4,500 views per week. So that's pretty good. Feeling pretty good about that. Again, uh, if you're interested in understanding or seeing uh, what type of companies or what type of investments or speculations that um, we are, that I'm, doing uh, that are in the newsletter uh, to take advantage of some of the things we're talking about in these videos, then, uh, you know, check out in the comments or the um, space below, you can, you can take a subscription to the newsletter and uh, you'll, you're, you will uh, have an opportunity to understand how you can make some of these ideas actionable. All right, guys, that's it for this week. We'll talk to you next week.